Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. It's uh, almost Christmas. Yes, it is almost Christmas. It's a little hard to tell when um, all indoor and outdoor social gatherings have been banned. Uh, But, you know, we've got our decorations up, we've got presents under the tree... We got Christmas in our hearts. Yeah. How are you doing today, Sarah? I burned my hand and have just been complaining nonstop about it. Yeah. To be fair, <laughs> not super severe burns. Like, we haven't taken you to the hospital to get, like, your hand all wrapped up in bandages or anything. No. It's more of a you were making coffee and spilled some boiling water on yourself uh, kind of situation. Yeah. But... It still put a bit of a dampener on your day-to-day. I can't do anything with this hand. (laughs) Like, everything hurts with this hand. At least it's your left hand? I guess. Uh, How are you? I'm doing fine. I'm I'm perfectly well. Uh. Nothing wrong with me today. (laughs) What are we watching today? Today, Sarah, we are watching one of the strangest movies we probably will see for this show for a while in either direction. Okay. Uh, it's called Dementia, and it's from 1955. It is from other years as well, and is called different titles, too. But I'll get into that. That's just a symptom of dementia. <laughs> you you lose track of what year it is and... What and your name is. What your name is. Right. Yeah. Okay, well, tell us about it. So, this is one of those movies about which very little was known for a very long time, but because the movie developed a kind of cult following and cult appreciation, eventually, like, people went to the effort to, like, track down information. So we know a lot more about this movie now than people did, say... In 1955, when it came out? (laughs) Sure, or any year between then and 2000. Okay. Um... But the writer, producer, and director of this movie is John Parker, who we know very little about. He was, um... His name does sound fake. (laughs) Well, he was born John J. Parker III in 1899. Okay. And as you might surmise, he was the son of John J. Parker Jr., who was the son of John John J. J. Parker. Parker... And his mother, Hazel H. Parker, was the head of the J.J. Parker theater chain in Oregon. (laughs) Sorry, I just love the idea of, like, having a chain of businesses as well as a chain of names. Oh, sure. Yeah, J.J. Parker owned a lot of indie theaters throughout Oregon through, like, a good chunk of the 20th century, like the 1920s through the 1980s. I don't think they exist anymore, but a lot of, like, traditional old theaters in, like, Portland, for instance, were owned by J.J. Parker at one point or another in time. Places that don't exist anymore, like the Broadway Theater, places that do exist but are abandoned, like the Guild Theater, Um, but, you know, your indie downtown 
kind of theaters. Yeah. So, John Parker worked for the family business, uh, you know, under his mother. That was kind of his big main connection to movies, was being part of this theater chain. One day, his secretary, a woman named Adrienne Barrett, who I was unable to learn anything about other than her name and that she was his secretary. Uh, she came to him and told him about a nightmare she had had. Oh. And Parker thought it would make a good idea for, like, a short film. Like a little short, kind of weird horror art movie. Okay. So, uh, Parker cast Barrett in the lead, essentially to, like, play herself since it was a nightmare she had had um, and shot the film on location in Skid Row in Los Angeles, uh, which is like a neighborhood then and now that was kind of known for being very like dilapidated and neglected. It's called Skid Row. Yeah. I mean, other things like that's the reason why, you know what I mean? Yeah, like... It's the progenitor of that term. Yeah. And he shot this short film using his mother's money and, you know, connections to people in the film world so he could get, you know, crew and camera and, and actors and things, right? So this is just a hobby project. Yes. That also explains why there's no sound. Yeah, I'll get there. <laughs> One of the actors that he cast was a 33-year-old character actor named Bruno Vesota who is best remembered today for his appearances in the films of Roger Corman. Parker cast him as the film's antagonist and paid him $30 for 15 hours of shooting. Like $30 an hour? Or no, $2 like, an hour? Yeah, like, like $2 an hour for like a day's work. Wow. Okay. Uh, Parker was really pleased with the results of this shoot. He thought it turned out really well. So he decided to expand the idea into a full feature film. So he didn't even, like, try to take this short film and put it into film festivals, try to go to Sundance, to Cannes, and build up his directing career there. He was just like, this is dope. Let's just make a feature film version of this. Yeah, so the idea was to just shoot more and make it longer. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, so it's not a, he didn't remake it as a feature film. He took what he had that was meant to be and a expanded. short film and expanded it. Yeah. Okay. Um, and ultimately like feature film is kind of a stretch. The movie is 55 minutes long, which is really just under what you kind of need to be a feature film, but like is too long to be a short film. That's just an episode of Mad Men. But this new feature-length version would shoot in the L.A. suburb of Venice, which in the 1950s was very much a victim of heavy neglect from the city, was mm -hmm. very um, dilapidated, kind of the home of a lot of criminal gangs, um, a large immigrant population, and also a large um, contingent of the beatnik movement. Oh. Yeah, lots of <laughs> beat generation uh, people... In Venice in the 1950s. Well, let's go shoot where the, the criminals and those poets are. It's a very... Those dang stinky poets. <laughs> <laughs> Bringing down property values. <laughs> the movie is definitely considered to have kind of a beat influence to it. Okay. 
Now, at this point, Bruno Vesota kind of became an associate producer on the movie, as well as something of like a co-director and co-screenwriter by helping Parker come up with new ideas and new scenes in order to, you know, expand the length of the movie out, um, as well as he aided you know, this first-time filmmaker in kind of getting the performances he wanted out of the actors um, or the effects he wanted from the visuals. Not that, like, Vesota was some sort of hugely experienced person either, but he at least had been on film sets for real movies yeah. before, which was more than, you know, Parker or um, his star, Barrett, had ever done. Uh, the film was shot without sync sound, so, you know, there were just no boom mics or sound recording equipment um, during the shoot, you know, because they were shooting just kind of like on the streets, on location, here and there in real places at night. And ultimately the finished film incorporates only Foley sound effects and no dialogue. So by Foley, just in case people don't know what that refers to, that's just sound effects created in post-production. That's right, yeah. Yeah. Uh, in addition to Adrian Barrett and Bruno Vesota, the film's amateur cast includes Ben Roseman, who was also the film's production designer and also became another co-producer. Uh, Bruno's wife, Jebby, appears. Uh, Parker's wife, Faith, appears. There are some cameo appearances, I guess you could say, from people who have a kind of fame. Um, Why are you saying it like that? Well, for example, uh, dwarf actor Angelo Rosito, who appeared in Freaks, The Corpse Vanishes, Scared to Death, and Mesa of Lost Women, he shows up in this movie as a newsie, which was his day job in L.A. when he wasn't acting. <laughs> so did they just run into him on the street, or were they like, hey, can you be Probably a newsie? Probably her... just okay. ran into him on the street, yeah. That's funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Also, a very young Shelley Bateman appears in this film as a stoned beatnik. Um, Bateman would go on to become a very popular comedian with, like, Grammy Award-winning comedy albums and a long career appearing on TV and in movies um, all the way up to his death at age 92 in 2017. Like, he's Larry David's dad on Curb Your Enthusiasm and stuff like that. Okay. So he's just here because... You know, he was around, and he was a nobody at the time. <laughs> he and, was a warm body that could play a stoned beatnik. Right. It is unclear if maybe he just was a stoned beatnik who happened to be <laughs> in a scene. Uh, there's a scene in this movie in a nightclub which features the jazz music of Shorty Rogers and the Giants, who appear in the film playing themselves... And get credit for providing music for the movie in the credits. But, like, probably they were just, you know, the act at the nightclub. Yeah. When they went to shoot at this nightclub. It is kind of nice that because all of this sound and audio is post-production, the producers went to these guys and were like, hey, can we use your music mm -hmm. in this movie? Mm -hmm. um, they weren't just like, yeah, just throw some, like classical library music over this band. Yeah, no. Uh, so they, they provide their own music and, and play themselves. The film's cinematography is by William C. Thompson, 
whose career as a DOP stretches back all the way to 1914, and whose work we have seen before, because he shot Maniac in 1934. <laughs> of course. And he also shot the films of Ed Wood in the 1950s. He shot Glenn or Glenda, Jailbait, Bride of the Monster. Uh, you know, after this, he would shoot Plan 9 from Outer Space and Night of the Ghouls. A warm body who knows how to point a camera. Mm-hmm. So we've got Ed Wood, cinematographer, and we've got, you know, an actor who mostly works with Roger Corman. And then we've got a bunch of, like, nobodies and people we ran into on the street. But the film's main musical accompaniment, which provides, like, most of the audio in the film, is a score by George Anthale, who was one of the major American avant-garde composers of the 20th century. Okay. So George Anthale was born in 1900 in Trenton, New Jersey. He was the son of a German shoe salesman. And he grew up bilingual and began studying piano at age six. Yeah, German's a good language to be bilingual in if you're into music, hmm. in classical music. At age 16, he went to Philadelphia to study under Konstantin von Sternberg, who was a pupil of Franz Liszt. And in Philadelphia, he became exposed to the modernist art movement. Anthale um, never ended up going back to Trenton to finish high school. Instead, he continued studying under von Sternberg and went to New York to work with and study under progressive modernist artists there. Okay. Anthale's compositions from this period emphasized a kind of mechanical sound that was influenced by the rhythms of industrial machinery. Von Sternberg introduced Anthale to his patron, Mary Louise Curtis Bach, who was the founder of the Curtis Institute of Music, and she put Anthale on a monthly stipend of $150 a month, which enabled him to pursue his music with a degree of independence. Patrons are wonderful, mm -hmm. such as our patrons of the night. Patreon.com slash Scream Scene Podcast. <laughs> yeah, $150 a month in 1919 is like just over two grand a month now. Nice. In the early 1920s, Anthale began composing his first symphonies, and he sailed to Europe with the intent of becoming known as a new ultra-modern composer. Anthale uh, became well-known there, meeting and traveling with various composers like his idol, Igor Stravinsky, and marrying Hungarian Bosky Marcus. Stravinsky did Rite of Spring, right? Yes, that's right. Marcus and Anthale moved to Paris and lived there during the period when, like, Hemingway and those people were there, um, and they became part of, like, that social circle. Wonderful. I'm just... <laughs> Hemingway in Paris is also just like, oh boy, Hemingway man. Yeah, and like, you know, so... The Fitzgeralds are there. Ezra Pound. Yeah, like, all of those people. Um, in fact, Ezra Pound ended up introducing Anthale to Jean Cocteau, and Jean Cocteau ended up getting Anthale concerts in Paris, uh, which, to Anthale's great glee, were greeted by riots uh, mid-concert, you know, just like his hero Stravinsky, 
Um, these riots were likely staged on purpose by Cocteau for publicity. <laughs> but Anthel doesn't know this. Yeah. So he's, he's just like reveling in it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is like a Seinfeld episode where Cocktail was like, do I tell him? Do, do I just keep up this ruse? Anthel purposely developed a reputation as the bad boy of modern music. <laughs> um, he would do things like pound the piano keys so hard during performances that he would injure his hands. Um, before a concert started, he would take a revolver out of his jacket pocket and then just place it atop the piano for the rest of the concert. <laughs> this is what happens when you don't finish high school. <laughs> you don't get out your teenage antics early enough and they follow you into like your 20s and 30s. Anthel's best-known piece is called Ballet Mécanique. And it was composed to accompany the Dadaist film of the same name. The film premiered without the score in Austria in 1924, and the score premiered without the film in Paris in 1925. The two were finally shown together for the first time at the Museum of Modern Art in New York in 1935. I mean, that fits with the Dadaist movement, I guess. A performance of Ballet Mécanique at Carnegie Hall in 1927 was met with a very negative response, and Anthale's reputation in America never really recovered from that. early 30s, Anthel and his wife moved to Germany to, you know, explore the art scene there. And then the rise of Nazism led to them fleeing Germany and coming back to America. Anthel's return to American life saw his work begin to shift away from extreme modernism and mechanical sounds into more tonal neo-romantic styles. He moved to Hollywood in 1936 and became a sought-after film composer. Um, Anthale felt that most movie scores were terrible (laughs) and that the movie industry was hostile to modern music. Uh, But he did feel that the scores he made greatly improved the movies they were used in. Dude has a bit of an ego. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um... He did a lot of different movie scores. Um, A notable one might be that he did the music for In a Lonely Place by Nicholas Ray. Oh, okay, okay. As his career in movies 
continued, um, he started looking for avenues to experiment with his music more. And for this reason, he increasingly turned to indie movie producers in the 1950s. If he really wanted to experiment with his music more, he should have just gone to much more music. A a good joke for the, like, (laughs) 20 people who will get it. During this period, his style continued to evolve into jazz-inspired romantic tonalities. Anthale himself would pass away in 1959 in Manhattan of a heart attack. Oh, dang. Anthale's score that he wrote for Dementia was orchestrated and conducted by Austrian composer Ernest Gold, who was born Ernest Goldner in Vienna in 1921 to a violinist father and a singer mother. (laughs) Eric and Christine. Yes, that's right. (laughs) And uh, Ernest learned to read music before he learned to read words. He began composing at age six, and he grew up wanting to become a film score composer like Max Steiner. When Nazi Germany annexed Austria in 1938... Gold moved to the U.S. due to his Jewish heritage. His first symphony was played over NBC Radio a year later in 1939, and he performed at Carnegie Hall in 1945, before moving to Hollywood that same year to work at Columbia Pictures. So the only really significant things about dementia are the people who were involved with the music side. Yeah, In 1950, Gold married singer Marnie Nixon, uh, with whom he had three children, including musician Andrew Gold, who would be a major figure in the pop rock uh, scene of L.A. in the 1970s, and also wrote the song Thank You for Being a Friend, which is most famously known as the theme song for the television show Golden Girls. In 1955, independent movie producer Stanley Kramer had Gold orchestrate George Anthale's score for the movie Not as a Stranger, which began the working relationship between these two men, and is thus why Gold is doing the same job for Anthale's score for this movie. Gold would later go on to compose his own scores for movies like The Defiant Ones in 1958, Inherit the Wind in 1960, Exodus in 1960, for which he won an Academy Award for Best Original Score... Judgment at Nuremberg, 1961, It's a Mad, 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 Mad World in 1963, and Cross of Iron in 1977, and he became the first composer to be honored by the Hollywood Walk of Fame. He passed away in 1999 from a stroke. The music in the movie has a lyricless vocal accompaniment, which is provided by Gold's wife, Marnie Nixon. And she was born Margaret Nixon McKeerthen in 1930 and started her career as like a child actress and singer um, before concentrating more on the singing as she grew older. In 1947, she performed solo at the Hollywood Bowl under conductor Leopold Stokowski singing Karl Off's Carmina Burana, um, the most famous movement of which is the opening and closing movement, O Fortuna. Okay. Which is the um, music from Excalibur, when they're, like, riding the horses. Yeah, that. Yeah. (laughs) That's cool. 
1948, she provided the singing voices of the angels in the film Joan of Arc, starring Ingrid Bergman. And she began a career dubbing the singing voices of actresses in musicals. Sure. So, for instance, she dubbed the opening high notes of Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend for Marilyn Monroe in the film Gentlemen Prefer Blondes in 1953. She also provided the singing voice of Deborah Kerr in The King and I in 1956. She dubbed Natalie Wood's singing voice in West Side Story in 1961, although Wood didn't actually know that. Ooh, that's... It's a long story. Uh, she <laughs> One for another day. Right. She dubbed Audrey Hepburn's singing voice in My Fair Lady in 1964. Uh, and she did all of these things, like, uncredited, right? Because the illusion that Hollywood wanted to present was that these actresses were actually singing these songs, right? Yeah, but, you know, the people behind the scenes know that it's her. Mm -hmm. That's why she's getting the work. Exactly. And that's, like, half the battle. In 1956, she appeared in the role of Sister Sophia in The Sound of Music, a rare on-screen appearance for this woman whose voice everybody knew. And in the 1970s and 80s, she mostly, like, taught. Um, she performed opera recitals, and she also toured with her own show. Uh, she was the singing voice of the grandmother in Disney's Mulan in 1998, and she passed away from breast cancer in 2016. That's too bad. So yeah, all of the music people for this movie are a big deal. Uh, Dementia was edited by down-on-his-luck former movie serial editor Joseph Gluck, who in the prime of his career... Down-on-his-gluck. <laughs> in the prime of his career, he had edited Flash Gordon's Trip to Mars, The Phantom Creeps, Buck Rogers, The Green Hornet, Flash Gordon Conquers the Universe, and The Green Hornet Strikes Again. So the film was completed in 1953 and submitted to the New York State Film Board for approval for exhibition in New York State. Uh, the censor board rejected the movie. <laughs> they called it, quote, inhuman, indecent, and the quintessence of gruesomeness. The three ingredients you need for horror. Parker would submit the film to ten different censor boards over the next two years, all of whom rejected it. And there was no way that it would get, like, code approval that you would need to be shown in, like, a mainstream theater. Um, Luckily, his family owns a chain of theaters. Right. That are still controlled by the censor boards. <laughs> sure. That would not give this movie approval, especially in Oregon. To get code approval for, like, a mainstream release, almost all of the film's content would need to be cut. And then, yeah, to get even a release in, like, indie theaters, um, you still needed, like, your individual state censor board's approval. The film would finally be released in New York City at a single indie art house cinema on December 22nd, 1955, after four shots of a hand being cut off were removed. Damn, a hand being cut off. Due to the film's length, it was shown on a double feature with a 50-minute documentary about Picasso. <laughs> okay. And a big part of how it finally got censor board approval to get shown at this one art house cinema is that Parker had gotten playwright, screenwriter, and director Preston Sturgis to champion the film's artistic value. 
a quote from Sturgis was even put into the opening frames of the movie at this time. So you would see this quote at the start if you were seeing this movie at this art house cinema in late 1955. What did it say? On guard! Art is a medium for the transmission of emotions. It is not difficult, then, to determine for yourself, at least, whether a work of art has failed or succeeded. It was intended for you. You are the only judge. <laughs> I enjoyed dementia. It stirred my blood, purged my libido. The circuit was completed. The work was a work of art. Whether you like it or not will depend entirely upon the permeability of your emotional shell, your idioplasm, and your previous conditions of servitude. It is not important. <laughs> wow. Okay. All right. Uh, upon release, the New York Daily News said, quote, It's enough to drive anybody crazy with alternate sessions of tedium and bedlam. Variety called it, quote, the strangest film ever offered for theatrical release. And the New York Times said, quote, Mr. Parker's desire to say something new cannot reconcile one to the lack of poetic sense, analytical skill, and cinematic experience exhibited here. So, you know, mixed reviews. <laughs> the extremely influential French film magazine Cahir du Cinema said, quote, to what degree this film is a work of art, we are not certain. But in any case, it is strong stuff. <laughs> it is something. This release of Dementia was not a success. Really? In any kind of measurement. <laughs> um, certainly not financially. But two years later, the distribution rights for the film were bought by Jewish-Romanian indie movie producer Jack H. Harris to be distributed by his company, which was literally named Exploitation Pictures. X for the big X? Or Exploitation, like E-X? Like yeah, how you yeah, spell. normally, okay. yeah. Wasn't sure if it was a quartermass experiment situation. No. Harris retitled the movie Daughter of Horror, and he re-edited it somewhat. Um, the most significant change is that he added expository narration throughout the movie, not necessarily explaining the film's plot, which is a very, like, surreal dream logic kind of thing, so much as commenting on the events happening on screen with kind of over-the-top purple <laughs> prose. So Bella Lugosi in Glenna Glenda. Right, or like Stan Lee narration. Yeah. Uh, this narration was voiced by a 34-year-old pre-fame, pre-Tonight Show Ed McMahon. Wow. Yeah, uh, one of the, like, best-known announcers of the, you know, late 20th century. Yeah. This uh, new version, Daughter of Horror, was released in indie exploitation theaters across the U.S. on February 18th, 1957. In May of 1957, it was denied release in the U.K. by the BBFC, and it remained banned there until 1970. The film's greatest notoriety may have been achieved by the fact that the Daughter of Horror version is the movie that's being played at the theater when the Blob attacks in the original 1958 version of The Blob, which was produced by Jack H. Harris. Daughter of Horror passed into the public domain and became the most commonly known and seen version of this movie on VHS. Uh, so for a long time, this movie was kind of known for 
this over-the-top bombastic narration from Ed McMahon. And was like, oh, hey, it's pre-fame Ed McMahon. In the year 2000, Kino Video released the original version, Dementia, to DVD, the first time it had been seen since 1955. Always can count on Kino. Uh, And Kino's DVD actually includes both versions of the movie. Nice. Uh, And this was sort of the best home video version to see until October 19th, 2020. Oh, that's this year, Ben. That's right. Uh, when BFI, the British Film Institute, released a dramatically improved new restoration on Blu-ray. Why Why is this movie getting attention from, like, this film institute and from Kino? Well, because, like, it's... I mean, we're going to see, right, sure. Sarah? Like, okay. we're going to see. Yeah, I guess. But it doesn't matter, Ben. <laughs> Sturgis says... Um... So this is now, I would say, like the version to see, this new Blu-ray. And we've added this new HD restoration to the Scream Scene playlist on YouTube. Awesome. You can find that playlist on our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. And hopefully you can watch along. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude. And when we come back, we will discuss Dementia from 1955, directed by John Parker. Oh, yeah. and, And to be clear, it is the original version, Dementia, that we're watching for the show, not the Daughter Daughters of Horror, Horror version with the narration. Yeah. See you on the other side, everybody. To Scream Scene, everybody. We just finished watching Dementia from 1955, directed by John Parker. And I don't know if this was super clear in my context setting, but John Parker never made another movie after this. I was going to ask. Yeah, this is this is the one and only. And what an only. <laughs> um, this movie is weird and interesting. Hmm. It's not as weird as I thought it was going to be. Sure. Um, I think for the 1955 audience, uh, I think it would be considered much weirder than what we here in 2020 would kind yeah. of consider weird. Yeah, I think we're a lot more used to this kind of filmmaking because one of the things about avant-garde art, you know, of any kind, mm-hmm. is that whatever's on like the leading edge of weird and experimental will eventually become standard. Yeah. Subsumed by the mainstream. It's one of the reasons why if you don't like experimental film, you should still watch it and look at it because it gives you new techniques that you can then bring into mainstream film. And by 2020, a lot of what this movie is doing that would be weird for 1955 is kind of more par for the course. Like, other than the complete lack of dialogue, Mm -hmm. there's nothing stylistic, like, formally in this movie that reads as experimental or avant-garde to a 2020 audience that's used to, you know, music videos 
and um, I'm going to talk about all this a lot more later, the films of David Lynch and things like that. Even just TikTok. <laughs> and just like the rapid fire, like in your faceness of that or Robot Chicken. Like, sure. Yeah. Like, that makes us as an audience a bit more flexible when it comes to understanding something that's like conveying meaning very quickly. Yeah, for sure. And, and conveying it through visuals. Um, yeah, I'm pretty much on the same page as you, uh, where I liked this and I think it's interesting and is going to give us a lot to talk about, but it's, it's certainly not as weird as I was expecting but I think it does show kind of the value of doing this project the way we're doing it in chronological order, because yeah. I think a lot of the impact of the movie was still retained for us because we're seeing it in the context of, you know, what else 1955 had to offer. Yeah, like going from the Quatermass experiment to dementia. Mm. For, like, just an average moviegoer, mm -hmm. it would be a little bit like Whiplash. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, so I think we can get through the story pretty quickly. Yeah, well, okay, so this is the order of events. Some of the ways that the movie emphasizes things are a little bit different than how chronologically they go. Through. So I'll try to, like, retain as much of that as possible. Sure, yeah. But that's just, like, the nature of something that's a little more surreal. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if you really want the experience, like, watch, watch the movie. It. It's free on YouTube. It's and less than an hour. Yeah, yeah. Our main character doesn't have a name. Uh, no one really has a name. Her name in the credits is The Gamin. And just so everyone's on the same page, Gamin is like a French word. Just kind of describes a young woman who's kind of flirtatious. Wikipedia said sexually teasing uh, which is a weird way to describe flirtation. <laughs> sure. But just, like, young, available, and is going to, like, flirt with you a little bit. But might not actually be into anything beyond flirting. Yeah, and um, sort of an implication of, like, a petite woman. Yeah. The, the, the stuff I looked at always used Audrey Hepburn as the example. Sure. So I'll be referring to our main character as the Gamine. And the film opens with the Gamine awaking from a nightmare. Uh, we see this nightmare. She's on a beach and she is running away from the waves and is overcome by the crashing waves. But she wakes up and she decides, okay, now I'm going to go out on the town. And the way she gets ready is by getting a switchblade ready. <laughs> in the same way that, uh, you know, someone who's going out clubbing might put some like pepper spray in her purse. Maybe not in the same way, <laughs> but that's, that's maybe a question of interpretation that we can sure. talk about later. Absolutely. Um, she does look at the blade kind of like, <laughs> kind of yeah. feeling. Yeah. It's less of a like, oh, this is a necessary evil that I need for protection here in the big bad city, but I hope I'll never have to use it. And more like, yeah, going to stab some fools tonight. As she is leaving her rundown hotel slash apartment building, she passes by what looks to be a neglected toddler. Um, she also passes by a domestic violence situation where a elderly woman neighbor has clearly called the cops on her neighbor. A cop is there and is looking over the woman, uh, like the wife's 
um, bruises and takes the man, the husband, away. Mm-hmm. Eventually, the gamine makes it down to the street and goes up to get a newspaper, which the main headline is Mysterious Stabbing. She looks at this like, yeah, how mysterious was that stabbing? <laughs> With the same kind of smile on her face when she looked at her switchblade. As she is moving through the streets, um, some junks start, like, basically catcalling her, and one actually grabs her and won't let go. Luckily for the gamine, um, some cops are coming by, and one goes and is basically, like, beating this junk, and the gamine is relishing and singing this display of power against this junk. As she leaves, she runs into who I can only describe as a pimp. Yeah. Um, He uh, kind of woos her a bit. Um, They stop by a flower girl, and he gets a flower to put in his um, lapel. And this pimp um, arranges for Argamine to escort a rich man for the evening. It's implied, or at least I got the impression, that this is like the first time that they're meeting the Gamine and the pimp. Yeah. Um, Just to like... Be clear. Yeah. Again, there's, you know, with the lack of dialogue, a lot of interpretation on the part of an audience, both in terms of thematic meaning, but also sometimes just in terms of, like, literal meaning in the way that it's up to the audience to sort of connect the dots in this movie sometimes. Yeah. The Gamine and the Rich Man head to bar after bar, including one where there is a dancer on stage, which turns out to be the director's wife. That's right. Um, And the rich man is, you know, if you want a moment that is just, like, ideal for showing what male gaze means, Mm. the rich man is, like, staring into the camera, and that's intercut with the camera itself moving closer and closer on the dancer's undies that she's, like, flashing as she dances. Yeah. Yeah. Male gaze. During the night out with the rich man, the Gamine um, has, like, almost like a flashback to her childhood. Yeah, a flashback, nightmare, waking dream, um, hallucination, madness vision. (laughs) Because it's not like... Yeah. It shouldn't be characterized as, like, a strict flashback. This is true. I doubt that these events literally happened the way we see them. Who knows? Like, I don't think that she grew up living in a graveyard outside. (laughs) Okay, so as Ben said, uh, this nightmare vision takes place in a graveyard. Um, The Gamin walks up, and this, like, man in a suit with, like, a hood over his face, who's basically supposed to be, like, a dapper death. Yeah, he. it's like a... Hood's not quite the right word. It's it's like he's wearing like a black nylon stocking over his face. Yeah. Right? So that his whole head just reads as, as black. Um, it's funny you read him as like death because I kind of read him as what if the ghost of Christmas future had to like fill in for the ghost of Christmas past <laughs> one night when that ghost needed like a night off. So anyways, Dapper Death appears. And we see two tombstones, one labeled father and the other mother. 
as the camera see the tombstone for father, we look beyond it to recall uh, what is maybe like a memory of uh, the Gamin's childhood, where her father is a drunk and beats her. Then as we pan over to the mother's headstone, uh, we look beyond it to get a little domestic scene where the mother is um, a vain woman sitting on the couch reading magazines and eating chocolate in like a fur coat. Yeah, a fur coat and like a slinky black dress. Yeah. Um, father comes home and he's like, hey baby. And she's like, no. So he's dejected, looks over and sees a butt of a cigar that isn't his. And she's like, yeah, ha, 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 I've been cheating on you. And he shoots her. And then the gamine stabs him in the back with the switchblade. Then we come out of the scene and then come out of the graveyard. And we're back with the gamine with the rich man. They reach the rich man's apartment and he gets ready for another meal, um, completely ignoring the gamine. When the rich man finally finishes eating, he approaches the gamine, um, but she pushes him away, kind of disgusted with him after seeing him eat this meal, uh, and so she moves to the balcony. He pulls out a roll of dollar bills and approaches her again, and she stabs him with the switchblade. He falls as she pushes him over the balcony ledge, and he grabs and takes her necklace with him. The Gamine looks to be like quite proud of herself for this, and as she leaves the balcony, uh, one of the rich man's servants hands her a drink with like a knowing smile, and that's when she like flashes to seeing the rich man hand her the drink and then flashes back to the servant, and she's like, what the fuck is going on? And runs out of the apartment and out of the building. She passes the body of the rich man on the street. There's now a crowd kind of gathering, and this crowd are wearing, like, normal clothes, but they all have, like, the hood nylon stocking thing over their face, like Dapper Death. And she sees that he still has her pendant in his hand. She wants it back, so she kind of crawls over to try to avoid being seen and tries to pull it out of his hand. Um, but it's just clenching this necklace so tight that she's like, okay, I guess I gotta cut off this hand. As Ben said in the context setting, to, in order to release this film, they had to um, take out the shots of the cutting of an actual hand. But between the physical acting of the gamine, like, sawing her arm, uh, a shot of the dead body rocking back and forth, as well as, um, musically, the sawing of a bow over strings. You get the point. Yeah. She steals his hand and runs down the street. Now, following the Gamine and the rich man through these bars and in the lobby of the rich man's apartment was a plainclothes detective who is played by the same actor as the guy who played the Gamine's father in the flashback vision sequence. Um, so he's been following them through the bars, through the lobby, and now he's following the Gamine. Yeah, so the impression, like, I got, but again, this is one of those, like, connect the dots, read between the lines thing, is that the rich man was, like, some kind of big deal criminal who this, like, plainclothes detective had been following all night and then like you know after this death slash dismembering then is going after the gamine mm. 
Yeah, I wasn't sure. I couldn't remember if this policeman, if we had seen him earlier. Oh, if when... he's the same one who rescues her in the alley. Yeah, I'm not yeah. sure if it's the same one who, like, beats the drunk, but there's another guy in the cop car. Yeah, I'd have to watch it again, but I had the same thought. The first time I definitely noticed him was when he was tailing them through the clubs and stuff. Yeah. So now this detective is following our gamine. Um, so we get a little bit of a chase scene as well as like, uh, he hops back into the cop car and they have like the spotlight thing. So we get some cool like shots of very dark streets and then a spotlight following the gamine as she tries to run away. Uh, she eventually runs into that flower girl back when she first met the pimp and she gives, she lays the rich man's hand still holding the pendant in the flower basket. And just gives the flower girl a look like snitches get stitches. <laughs> no one will ever know. Yeah. Like, I mean, is continuing to uh, be hounded by the police, but she's sort of rescued by the pimp um, who pulls her into a doorway. Turns out this doorway is a jazz club that the pimp also manages or something. I don't know. Gamine gets to kind of enjoy uh, being behind the stage with the jazz club. She gets to change into a fancy dress and is enjoying a little bit of some attention from the pimp, despite um, the uh, jealous looks from another girl that is with the pimp. Um, and then The pimp is, is credited, by the way, uh, in the credits as the evil one. Yeah, which is interesting. Once we get um, into the actual jazz club with the band playing on stage, you know, everyone's kind of enjoying the music, and then our plain clothes detective comes in, and he gets a couple of bribes from a random man in the bar, um, from, the, uh, from the pimp himself, and when he and the gamine lock eyes, he pulls out some handcuffs. Everyone in the club, like, looks at it, and then is, like, pointing at the gamine and, like, laughing. And suddenly at the window is the rich man with no hand, also sort of pointing with his stump um, and laughing at the gamine. Everyone's kind of crowding in and encircling her. It's kind of like the climax of a surrealist moment. I, I mean, because that's literally what it is, yeah. Yeah, I don't know how else to describe it. And then suddenly she wakes in bed, at her dingy hotel room. The music even has stopped. Mm -hmm. And she looks over and sees the chain of her pendant sticking out of a drawer. She goes, oh, okay. And she goes and opens it just to look, because maybe it was all a dream. And the pendant is clutched by the rich man's hand, and it's, like, moving. She screams. The end. Yeah. <laughs> A very kind of almost like traditional horror short story kind of ending. Yeah, very like Twilight Zone feeling. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that we, we kind of mentioned at the beginning of the second half that us here in 2020 were kind of used to stories edited in this kind of nature. Um, I think the, the one that popped to my mind as kind of the most similar would be the ending of American Psycho, where you're not really sure what is reality and yeah. what is illusion or hallucination. Yeah, when he's like, sort of thinks he's being pursued and is in like that desperate state at the end and things aren't really making 
sense anymore. Yeah, and has he killed or has he not? Yeah. A more contemporary example um, might be the final ending of Dead of Night. Yeah, I definitely thought of that as well. Yeah. There's a lot of, like... Basically, the movie is is asking for you to interpret it, right? Yes, very much like so. it's putting a lot out. It's setting a table of a lot of things and asking you to figure out how to put it together and what it's going for in terms of its meaning. Um, you know, obviously, if you watch the Daughter of Horror version, which has narration, the movie in that case is holding your hand a little bit more. And I've heard the difference between the two versions referred to as, like, one being, like, an experimental art dreamscape film and the other feeling much more like a campy, cheap exploitation movie. Sure. Um, in the way that a lot of those kind of movies had, like, weird, bad narration. Um, it's interesting to think about the connections between this and, like, Roger Corman movies or Ed Wood movies in the sense that they all kind of had more of a license to depict the seedier side of American life. Yeah, I was thinking about this and um, Glenna Glenda. Yeah, it's it weirdly has a lot of the same feel. Um, yeah. Mostly because tied up with the, you know, violence and the crime and the horror elements in this movie is like very strong psychosexual themes. Yeah. As well as, like, asking us to analyze these characters' childhoods. These yeah. characters in um, the Gamine, and then also uh, Glenn slash Glenda mm -hmm. in the movie Glenn or Glenda. Yeah. I think that there are a lot of methods or frameworks you could interpret this movie within, but my feeling is that the theoretical framework the filmmakers intend for us to be analyzing this movie within is Freudian dream analysis. Yeah, like because I, it's like dream within dream. Well, and just the way that the movie is drawing connections between sex and violence and parents. Yeah. Really, you know, and and the the cop being the same actor as the dad and, and stuff like that. It just feels like it's really begging for a Freudian take. Um you know, the themes throughout the movie of, like, desire versus anger versus revenge versus fear versus hatred versus guilt. All really, you know, wrapped up in dreams and flashbacks. Mm -hmm. um, Wanting power yeah. in a weird way. Power through, like, sexual desire. Power through, like, the, the fact that she enjoys seeing that drunk man get beaten. And this drunk man, it's like... He gets, like, pistol-whipped by this cop, yeah. Yeah, it's, like, police brutality levels. Yeah. For 1955, at least. And she's, like, laughing gleefully. So it, that part reminded me of, just to be clear, uh, the gamine is white. It reminded me of Emmett Till a little bit. Okay. What I mean is, like, the way that white women would use police or anything like that to inflict power or agency on others. Okay. I didn't really get that reading, but I don't think that makes it any less valid of mm -hmm. a reading, because I think this movie is 
a Rorschach really, really test. Yeah, it's yeah. like a completely open book. Yeah, it's 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 a Rorschach test that's inviting you to like bring your own shit to it, right? But like, yeah, there's there's to be clear, like nothing racial in this movie. There's one black character, a woman at the jazz club, and that's it. Everyone else is is white. We do see a couple of uh, black musicians as they are bar hopping. Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah, but the yeah, pretty benign. Yeah. The thing about all of these, like, emotional themes is that they aren't mapped to, like, single characters. It's not like, oh, this character's afraid and this character is desirous. Like, the Gamine herself exhibits a complete spectrum of, like, emotional states that in another different movie would maybe render her a contradictory character. Mm -hmm. But because this movie is so centered on her own inner experience right because it's so subjective we're so very much seeing the world from her pov whether we're reading this as a dream or a hallucination or what have you right because i mean the title of the movie plus some of the editing and the way that she interacts with the world throughout the movie does give us the suggestion that like okay maybe this all doesn't make sense because it's a nightmare or maybe it doesn't all make sense because she's insane if I were to try to, like, armchair diagnose her with right. something, it would be either, like, multiple personalities or perhaps a bipolar disorder of some kind, mainly just because she goes from being flirtatious killer to scared young adult very quickly. Yeah, and I think that could be read as contradictory. I didn't read it that way. Like, I didn't get a multiple personality sense at all. I definitely got a schizophrenic. Mm-hmm sense um because she's clearly having issues determining what is and isn't real but we do see that she's much more complicated than you know just being the hounded victim character that she could be because even though the movie's you know her walking alone on the streets at night and getting you know catcalled by drunks and getting like pimped out by like some rando that she just met and then, like, having to, like, be around this, like, rich older man who, like, clearly has intentions on her. And then, like, you know, fleeing from the police and then, like, being trapped in this jazz club. But she's never 100% someone who we read as a victim. You know, there's certainly an interpretation of this movie where she's one of those horror protagonists who gets what she deserves. Right? Because, like, when she kills the rich man and pushes him out the window. And and in a lot of other cases in the movie as well, she doesn't always read as like a victim doing violence and self-defense. Yeah, she... it uh, reminded me of the premise of the movie um, Promising Young Woman. Mm, I don't know that one. I, oh, I don't know if it's come out or was going to come out and then COVID happened or what. But basically... The premise is this young woman purposefully puts herself in what appears to be, like, bad situations like date raped or, mm -hmm. or drugged or whatever um, to target guys and then murder them. Right. Yeah, there's definitely a sense when she goes out on the town. And, you know, the, the, the newspaper that you mentioned with the mysterious stabbing thing, like, it follows her throughout the movie. Like, the wind keeps blowing it into her path throughout the movie. And... It's it's an interesting subversion because she should traditionally be read as in a lot of danger. She's a young woman out in a very clearly bad neighborhood at like the middle of the night 
walking around alone and there's been mysterious stabbings, like, you know, that should be setting her up to be a victim. But, like, it's so clear that she's the one doing the mysterious stabbings. And when she pulls out that switchblade at the start of the movie, like, this isn't one weird night in her life. There's almost a sense that, like, oh, this is her regular evening routine. Like, all right, time to go out in the town and do some murder. And when she stabs the rich man, like, there's a sense of luring someone into a trap, Mm -hmm. right? Even though what's happening on screen suggests, you know, he's trying to force her into a position she doesn't want. Like, there's all these ambiguities because the entire time they're going bar hopping, for instance. She looks so bored and he's paying attention to the dancer on the stage or whatever, right? They get back to his apartment and he's like just engrossed in eating this fried chicken and not paying any attention to her. And she's like sitting there you know, with a drink, like, kind of slowly hiking up her skirt or, like, trying to make eyes at him, like, as if her feeling is like, okay, well, you clearly took me out to have sex with me, so, like, can we just do the sex? Like, what's up? And, like, getting really impatient with him. But then when he comes to her, she pushes him away. Yeah. And then he, you know, goes to give her the money. And she never even takes the money. The money falls out the window with him or whatever. But it does read, like oh, the intent here was she was always going to murder him. And then the Freudian stuff comes in with, you know, linking the sex and violence we see in the quote-unquote present day with the themes of sex and violence we see with her parents and, like, stabbing her dad because her dad shot her mom because her mom was kind of a skank and, like, her dad was, like, a real asshole. And, like, when we see the dad beating her up, it's after she's, like tiptoed into the house carrying her shoes so clearly she's like out late after curfew or something so maybe she was with like a boy or something and that's why he's pissed off like the violence and the sex is linked together you know at at, at every stage and even though we have a literal doppelganger for her dad in the cop it's also you know true that the rich man because he's a fat older man kind of resembles her dad in a way as well. Um, And all of the male-female relationships in the movie kind of crudely mirror each other because they all express the same kind of sordid opinion of humanity where, like, basically all of the male-female relationships show men as boorish, desire-driven, emotional abusers. And, you know, the women as put upon, attacked, but not wholly, like, innocent victims. There's a sense of, like, the women as having a toughness to them, even though they're the victims in the in the relationships. Mm-hmm. But regardless, we never really see, like, a good male-female interaction in the movie. Even with the just nameless patrons at the jazz club, there was something really weird going on in that scene where, like, there are people like dancing and like clapping their hands and like stomping along to the beat kind of thing. And like, yeah, like, yeah, jazz, daddy. Oh yeah. (laughs) And like snapping their fingers, but all of the most, um, exuberant enjoyers of the music are the men to the point where like, there's like a guy like practically having like what looks like, I don't know, like a heroin freak out or something like on the dance floor. And the women like aren't really as into it. They're kind of like just sitting there while their men are like, freaking out at the 
the jazz music, which to me sort of brings it back to this idea of showing men as being like very impulse driven or instinctually driven because of like the cultural connection in the fifties of like associating, you know, jazz with sex. Right. And like, even though there aren't really any black characters in the movie, you know, in the 1950s, there was definitely like cultural, basically you have to think of jazz in the 1950s as thinking of like rap music now or rap music 10 years ago, maybe in the sense that like, for a lot of people, there was an implicit connection from like jazz to black people, to sex, to crime, to drugs, right. As all being wrapped up. So yeah, there's just a lot of shit going on here. Yeah. And I think like also a major theme that is being put forward here is patriarchy. (laughs) Well, yeah, I think, I think absolutely that like, the modern interpretation on this movie, even if in 1955, this movie is saying, give me a Freudian analysis. I think in 2020, it's saying like, give me a feminist analysis. Um, because you have, um, the Gamine seeing the trappings of marriage in the beginning of like neglected children, um, abusive husbands, but then also experiencing the trappings of, I guess like single independence Mm. i guess with like constantly being hounded yeah and being considered like oh you're sexually available because you don't have anyone right the fact that like she doesn't have any independence even in sex work because the pimp is the one who gets the money sure um she's subjected to the whims of the rich man like she has no choice in the matter of anything that goes on the only time that she really is shown to have I guess agency in this world that's created Mm. is when she's able to inflict violence, whether that's with the stabbing or indirectly with getting the drunk man beat. Right. Or, you know, sawing a hand off. Well, yeah. Stabbing. Yeah. And like, you know, to talk about her contradictions again, like even when she's the most afraid in this movie and she's, you know, running in fear, She's never running in fear from, like, the rich man who would want, like, sex or something. She's running in fear from the police after she's killed the rich man and sawed his hand off. (laughs) So, like, you know, even when the movie positions her in the role most similar to a traditional victim role of a woman in a horror movie, it's not really like she's an innocent victim screaming as the monster's coming for her because she's a crook on the run from the cop, who we also know is a crooked cop because he takes bribes. So, like, nobody's clean here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think you can also see, like, you know, the police father figure as symbolizing patriarchy as a Mm. whole, both in the sense of, like... Policing female behavior. Policing female behavior, um, self-policing in an abusive home, Mm -hmm. like with walking on eggshells and whatever... Um, honestly, though, like, that's, I don't know, that's, like, such, like, a surface-level reading of this movie that I am not sure if the movie wants us to go deeper or if that's just the fact that the movie was made by two guys based on a dream a woman had. Not to, like, 
completely deride what the director and guy playing the rich man kind of came up with when they co-wrote the script. Yeah, I think one of the difficulties in this movie is, although we have a good sense of what the pieces of the puzzle here are, um, in that they're clearly, you know, sex and violence and people's lives and, and things like this. Um, and even though it seems pretty obvious what with the dream structure that the movie's kind of saying, hey, you should be interpreting this in a Freudian way, because that would have been what was current in pop culture understanding of dream psychology in the 50s. We ultimately don't know intent. Yeah. Right? Like, we we don't have any kind of sense of what the artistic intent of John Parker was, aside from thinking that his secretary's nightmare was a good idea for a movie, and then thinking that it was cool enough to expand into, like, a full movie. So I think, you know, you can a, a, ascribe, like, really surface-level motivations and be like, oh, yeah, they're pigeonholing her into this role or that role because they're men and they don't understand women. Or there could be something else here because I think it's it's kind of the thing where it's like, okay, are the contradictions and the ambiguities here because this is like a really interesting work of art that's saying something interesting or are they here because like the people making the movie were like amateurs who don't know what they're doing. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Um, I don't know if you can really fall on either side definitively. I feel like to me, at least it makes for a more interesting work of art to consider all of those contradictions in the gamine as purposeful rather than just as like, not thinking through a character arc. I think the movie has a little more on its mind than that. And I think a lot of credit should go to Adrian Barrett as a complete amateur actress for the performance she gives as the Gamine. I mean, it's her nightmare, but like she has to get across all of those contradictions with just her face and she's not a professional actress, and she doesn't really know what she's doing, but I think she's doing a really good job. I mean, maybe if there was dialogue, it would have fallen apart. Who knows? But, like, I think she should really be commended for creating this character who I at least read as being pretty consistent, you know, in the sense that she, like the men in the movie, also has goals and desires in the sense that she's out to murder people. Yeah. And like the men in the club, she's also shown as getting into the jazz music. And despite the fact that she screams for help when the drunk guy goes for her or pushes the rich man back, she's not shown as, like, recoiling from sexual desire either. Like, when the pimp gives her her slinky new dress and kind of comes on to her, like, she enjoys that attention, right? So she's in herself not, I think being painted in the box of traditional narrative roles for women in the 1950s mm -hmm. because she's much more morally complex than that. And, you know, again, coming back to the fact that we don't know intent, how much of that has to do with the fact that the movie being structured the way it is as a kind of horror story where they're all out to get her at the end and she feels cornered and it has that big paranoia ending and then waking up, and it was all a nightmare, or was it? Because there's the hand in the drawer, you know, giving her kind of the same narrative role as like a telltale heart protagonist. Mm -hmm. We've talked about horror stories like that before, the kind of punish the guilty 
horror stories. So in that case, she needs to be guilty of something for that to work. So, like, yeah, is that contradiction between being a victim and being guilty here also just because it needs to be for, like, narrative reasons? I don't know. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Um, I also wanted to shout out the uh, production design. Sure. Um, It was very well done. Uh, Like, it first kind of grabs you because when it opens, the camera's, like, outside the window of the Gamine's hotel room. Um, And it's, like, very expressionist in the sense of, like, being very artificial because you have, like, the hotel sign on the side of the building and you see like the street, but it's all a painting. And then there's a cutout for her window, which is like matted in. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it opens like that before you even get into her dream is very interesting to me. Just thinking about like the history of German expressionism and psychological filler type of stuff. Yeah. There's a lot of a feeling of German expressionism in here especially because this is a psychological film where, you know, either it's all a dream or she's a little bit schizophrenic, but either way, we're seeing the entire world from her subjective perception of reality. I right? Think, I think a really cool double feature would be Caligari and then this. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're you're totally right about that. What's kind of interesting about, like, the stylistics of this is even if the editing techniques and the formal filmmaking structure here would have been very avant-garde for the 1950s, there's an aesthetic here that would be recognizable in 1953 that would have grounded this movie a bit for audiences, and that's the aesthetic of film noir. Absolutely. And Especially with the police detectives. Yeah, absolutely. And like just the urban sort of seedy crime setting, yeah. right? The femme fatale, even. Exactly. And it's interesting to think about, you know, we've on the show talked about the way that film noir was kind of something that grew out of or mutated off of German Expressionism. Almost, if you can think of German Expressionism plus... You know, crime fiction equals film noir. And the way that German Expressionism was frequently linked with horror. And the way that, you know, that connects in. But, like, film noir is a offspring of German Expressionism and crime fiction. This movie then feels like some strange, incestuous offspring of German Expressionism and film noir again. Yeah. Producing this. Um... I really liked Bruno Vesoda as the rich man. Um, I think he also gave a pretty good performance. Um, although I couldn't help thinking of the character of the role throughout the movie as being a part that Orson Welles should have played. I was thinking Charles Lawton. Sure. The uh, like the facial hair he has going on reminds mm. me of Charles Lawton. Just something about the way the film shot him. The way that it, it shot him from lower angles to, like, emphasize his size and make him appear larger than life. Obviously, you know, as we've mentioned, the actual filmmaking technique doesn't feel so avant-garde to us today. Yeah. Um, you talked about it reminding you of... The End of American Psycho. 
As well as the end of uh, Dead of Night. Yeah. Um, for me, this movie really feels like David Lynch. Both David Lynch, like the eraser head David Lynch, who made a black and white weird horror movie on his own time with his own money as an indie thing, which connects to this, but also very much the David Lynch of Blue Velvet, Twin Peaks, and Mulholland Drive in the way that those movies explore the aesthetic of the 1950s mixed with like very seedy underbellies of all of that with sex and drugs and violence, but also all being shown through a very like dream nightmare narrative lens so that things aren't straightforward. Like I cannot be convinced that David Lynch has never seen this movie because it's so completely his whole deal practically <laughs> that like, you know, it's like if you told me like, Oh yeah, Tim Burton's never seen the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. He doesn't even know what German expressionism is. Like I'd be like, Oh, you're lying to me so extremely hard. Same with this. If you were to tell me David Lynch has never heard of this movie, I would be like, okay, you're lying to me. Or David Lynch needs to see this movie right now and have whatever weird out-of-body experience you would have if you found out that your <laughs> entire style was done in a movie made, you know, 40 years before your career. And by complete amateurs. I have to imagine that it would have been kind of a trip to watch for an audience at the time because you are 20 years before Eraserhead and you're also 20 years after the height of German Expressionism. So you're kind of cinematically really far from this movie's other Touch cousins. Points? Yeah. Yeah, like even I was thinking with Dead of Night, the surrealist like paranoia part that is really similar to dementia happens at the end mm -hmm. of the final segment versus this film, which just throws you in and it's the entire movie and it ramps up for sure, but it's the entire movie. I can absolutely understand why when this was picked up for wider distribution, the first thought was let's put a narrator on here. Yeah. I don't know if narration was necessary through the whole damn movie. Um, and it is very like, describing what's happening on screen in a very like florid style kind of narration. <laughs> um, the narrator is speaking to the gamine through the narration. So it's like, what's around that corner? Oh no, daughter of horror. What have you encountered now? The grip of terror. Run, daughter of horror, run. Like okay. this kind of stuff. You know, so I don't know if it was really necessary through the whole movie, but I do see why someone might want to put some narration to start with just to intro the audience into what this movie is or what it's trying to do, yeah. you know, in that very Ed Wood kind of way of like, picture in your mind, a woman in a city, she could be any woman in any city, but what happens within her mind? Like, I'm just making this up as I go, right? Yeah. But like, I could see why that would be the impulse because we aren't ramped into this by anything. There isn't even like expository text at the start. We're just dropped into it. Mm -hmm. um, I was, I will say, um, disappointed that we didn't see Sturgis's, uh, Oh yeah. It wasn't on here. the, yeah. It wasn't on the print that we watched. Yeah. Um, we didn't get to see that. 
the music is really neat in here. Yeah, I think I think we should talk about the music because it is such a big part of the movie, and ultimately the people who made the music are so much more notable than everyone else who <laughs> was involved here. So the way that the music moved from being like mood setting, for lack of a better word, like just like very much like clearly a score to a movie to becoming diegetic when it moved into like the dancer on the stage or even the jazz music mm-hmm. like it was very seamless so it really underlined the feeling of this is a nightmare for me because it's like that feeling of like your entire nightmare is scored yeah um because the like music that is being played in the clubs is utilizing the same thematic melodies as the main score and there's no stop like ultimately the music is the narration yeah right because it's this consistent running commentary and you're absolutely right that it kind of starts as mood music but by the end of the movie it feels very integral to the nightmare you know to such a degree that when she wakes up there's no music exactly right yeah. and it feels like the music is part of what's telling the story and the music in a way really reinforces the sense that she's being hounded because it's that, you know, you keep going to different places, but you're running into the same musical theme. Um, Even like the way that the beat or the rhythm is kind of driving, it mm -hmm. has that feeling of like you're being hounded or she is pursuing. Yeah. And like, like you said, the mix between diegetic and non-diegetic, which is very well done here. um, And is, you know, rendered all the more vague by the fact that, there's no sound in this movie that wasn't created after the fact, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not like we can really hear a difference between um, the score or the music that the jazz band is playing in the way that, like, your ear can always tell, you know, the music that's been laid on top of a movie versus music that's supposed to be sounding like it's coming from within an environment. Yeah. It all sounds like the same in this film. Even with the sound effects, like her footsteps or when someone puts down a spoon, like a clink or whatever, because it is all done in post, like, it's not like it's, like, misaligned, mistimed or anything like that, but it just still maintains that quality of, like, when someone's laughing, like, maintains that quality of, like, blurring that diegetic, non-diegetic. Yeah, absolutely. It's like... Like, the gamine laughs at people, and we hear a laughter, but it's like non-diegetic laughter that's synced to her. Everything sounds like it's on the same unreal layer of reality. Yeah. Um, As for the music itself, to my ear, it read at least ten years ahead of its time. Yeah, because of Star Trek. (laughs) Yes, because to my ears, it sounded a lot like an Alexander Courage score for Star Trek. Yeah, that use of the... um, Theremin? The voice, right? And the voice. The woman's soprano voice doing these, you know, lyricless vocals. You know, not just in the main theme of Star Trek, but like Courage would use that in episode scores to kind of like suggest like otherworldliness, right? That kind of like kind of thing. Um, So it, it really made me think of that. And that's 10 years ahead from this. Yeah, I think ultimately 
what's the most shocking about this movie watching it in 2020 is not the formal filmmaking style so much as the subject matter. Yeah. Right? Because, like, this movie, we're just not used to seeing films of this vintage depicting the seedy underbelly of the world the way that this movie does, right? Because this movie touches on, like, prostitution, domestic violence, uh, police corruption, drug use, murder, um... Dehandification. Dismembering. <laughs> it's this kind of, like, nighttime, gritty world that, you know, in terms of mainstream Hollywood films... This is a world that would get hinted at in mainstream crime dramas, but not even shown like this in a mainstream crime drama. And then outside of that genre wouldn't exist at all in the world of other mainstream Hollywood films. And I think in some ways this movie is important in the wider view of history because it is giving testimony to the existence of that world, giving testimony to the existence of a very different 1950s than the one that is more often remembered by pop culture. That's, that's it for me. Like the idea of whether surface level or not, that this movie is depicting a young woman trying to navigate the pressures of patriarchy and showing the like domestic violence versus like sexual independence and how that compares to the sanitized leave it to beaver look of uh, of a woman in the 50s. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, even though I think most people if you sat them down and rationally asked them to think about it, they would agree that like, oh yeah, obviously the real world in the 1950s was not like leave it to beaver. One of the things about pop culture like movies and TV is that because it has survived as an audiovisual record from that period, we tend to view those periods through that lens. So there's still some part of us that when we think of the 1950s, we think of white picket fences and smiling families with front yards. And like, you know, even if we think of like, oh, the way that the 50s was dark underneath, we think of it in the terms of like, oh yeah, well we know today that having women stuck at home all day with no agency is bad. And we know that those marriages weren't so much happy as they were traps. And we know that those kids weren't so much free as they were neglected or whatever. That's still not the urban, crime-filled, decaying, violent world of pimps and prostitutes and murder and corrupt cops that's in this movie, right? And, you know... This world existed in the 1950s, and it's just that this movie could show it because this movie was operating so far outside <laughs> the normal censor boards, yeah. right? And, like, the code and stuff. Um, I think that that's a thing that's really valuable in this movie, is is seeing those kinds of things that, like, I feel like would be more normal or more expected in a movie about, like, New York in the 80s or something. And it's like, yeah, here's L.A. in the 50s. And, you know, or or it's seeing that film noir seedy underbelly of L.A. that you get in, like, um, the hard-boiled crime fiction of James Elroy, 
which tends to be set in this period, um, you know, and got made into movies like L.A. Confidential. But the difference is that this is a movie from that period. So we're seeing it in a much more like, even though it's a weird dream nightmare, it's a much more like authentic depiction. Sure. So I think, yeah, what's, what's shocking here is the explicitness. But I also feel like the combination in this movie of dream sequences, weird psychology, um, the symbolism, the violence, and also the feeling of what a cheap movie this is, really reminded me of some of the films we've seen by Cheno Urreta, like um, The Resuscitated Monster or The Witch. Sure. Just like, yeah, that kind of thing of like, it's weird and it's dreamlike and there's stuff going on here and it's kind of seedy and violent and also really cheap B-movie-ish. Well, um, if we're comparing it to movies, let's move on to ranking. For sure. The universe of this movie is a universe where I think the night court could exist, is what Uh. I'm saying. (laughs) So I have a pretty narrow range. Interesting. I, I, I don't know if my range is wide. It's like 13 movies big. Oh, mine's like four. Okay. Maybe I'll go first and we'll see if your range ends up being inside mine. Yeah, go for it. Those Cheno Urareta movies that I just mentioned, they're down in like the high 60s. La Bruya is 63 and El Monstro Resuscitado is 64. Um, I think this is ultimately better than those movies because even though this is a dream nightmare movie, I think this makes more sense than those movies. And also, like, the dreamness of this movie help, and, and, like, the artificiality of the production design helps hide how cheap it is. Right. It didn't feel like a cheap movie like, like the Roger Corman films we've seen. Right. And I think that, you know, one thing that helps in doing a dream nightmare movie on a low budget about sex and violence is not also trying to make it a universal monster movie at the same time. Yeah. So I thought this was better. Uh, So I started making my way up the list. Another touchstone, though, that I compared this movie to in my mind is with another unique, arty, artificial-looking horror movie from 1955 that nobody really understood at the time and wasn't very successful, and that's Night of the Hunter. Sure. Which is up at 29. Okay. So, I wasn't sure if I liked this better than Night of the Hunter or not. Interesting. Because I think that, although it's they're both first-time directors as well, I actually think John Parker might be better at getting across what he's trying to get across here than Charles Lawton was. You know, we talked a lot about how that movie is very good, but it's a movie also that shows a lot of potential that was then never fulfilled because Lawton, his aim seems to wander a little bit sometimes in that movie. Whereas this movie actually feels really laser focused to me on what it's doing. Well, it's dementia is adapting a nightmare versus, Mm um, night of the hunter adapting a novel. Right. Yeah. Right above Night of the Hunter is Creature from the Black Lagoon. And I was like, okay, if Dementia is better than Night of the Hunter, then it is better than Creature from the Black Lagoon as well. 
Um, above that is Kurota Ichapeji, which is another silent movie about madness. And I think Dementia is a lot more digestible and understandable than Kurota Ichapeji, though I thought it could be better than that. Right above that, though, is your German Expressionism two-punch of Cabinet of Dr. Caligari at 25 and Nosferatu at 26. And I think that's where I, I ceilinged out. I was like, no, the actual paragons of German Expressionism are, are definitely better than this movie that's taking the inspiration. So my ceiling is 27, below Nosferatu, above Kurota Ichipeji. And then working my way down to find a floor, um, you know, I looked at movies like Vampire at 34 is a movie that feels kind of similar to this in the terms of like silent but not really silent dream logic. So I thought maybe Vampire was better working my way down from there. Uh, where I stopped was at 39, The Queen of Spades, which has a lot of very artistic stuff as well. Very good, like, ghost story. I thought that might be better than this movie, but I think this movie is definitely better than what's below that, which is The Maze at number 40, the movie about Frog Boy. Um, so that's my range, 27 to 40. Okay. Where were you looking? Much lower. Okay. Um, my touchstone came in the form of 1928's La Chute de la Maison Usher, The Fall of the House of Usher, another very artsy, fartsy film, shotgunning all of the technique right at your face. Um, and I felt that this would make a good floor because dementia is not so long. <laughs> Or at least doesn't feel so long. Doesn't feel so long. It maintains a dreamlike quality while keeping you engaged in the story. Now, I believe it would be shorter than Usher. I think came out to about an hour and a half, if that. But, I mean, just thinking about, like, even the way it gets across things in a shorter amount of time. It, it depicts a dream world without making you start dreaming, which is the issue I have with Usher. Sure. You fall asleep. Yes. And then above that is Night Monster. <laughs> this list is really weird sometimes. It's really weird sometimes. Absolutely. Um, so, like I said, 61 is my floor. Mm -hmm. And as I was looking up, I kind of came to around Cult of the Cobra at 52. Oh, interesting. Another, like, gender dynamics 50s movie. Yeah, and I thought that Cult of the Cobra at least would have been seen by more people. <laughs> but it, it also managed to be, I guess for lack of a better word, like more traditional horror in the sense that there's a monster. Right. Um, and it doesn't feel like it's like dragging its heels or anything. Not that Dementia did, but I'm just like kind of saying like positive points to it. And you, you really are like following along. Dementia, I feel like, especially for the time period, it would lose people. People might just kind of throw up their hands and be like, fuck this. I mean, they did. Yeah, that's true. They did. Um, so basically my range is from 52 to 61. I have a more narrow range, but I thought maybe this might be a better way to go since I'm pretty far down from you. Yeah, we've basically got a little over 10 movies between our range. Yeah. Um, so if we look 
between my floor and your ceiling. We're basically looking in the 40s here on the list. Um, is there anything in that range that kind of strikes out to you as a point of comparison? Um, I guess 1941's Jekyll and Hyde, because of the Freudian, like, I guess dream sequences, but the, mm. like, sex and violence of it. Mm-hmm. I also think we have Freaks here at number 47 on the list, which is, you know, a very early example in film of the get what's coming to you kind of horror where everything's closing in around you at the end. Yeah. I think um, the gumming in Dementia is a bit more sympathetic of a uh, going to get what's coming to her rather than the chicken freaks, literally because she turns into a chicken. Um, Like, there's no sympathy for her at all. Like, you're not supposed to have any sympathy. I think one of the things that makes this movie a bit confusing in 2020 is I have no idea if the gamine at the time, in 1955, was supposed to be considered sympathetic or not. Like, I, you know, because I feel like now we see, you know, a woman alone at night accosted by men and then she stabs them. And it's like, oh, what an empowering moment for her. (laughs) And, like, I don't know if at the time in the 50s it would have just read as, like, oh, what a psycho murderer. I think part of what helps with her being sympathetic is I at least read her as a younger woman. Mm. She's not, like, a spinster. Yeah. She feels like someone who is, like, no longer a teen, is living on her own, and is very much a young, young adult. Right. And that probably helps with that. Well, what did you think about the Jekyll and Hyde comparison? That movie, because it's... That's what? MGM? Yeah. Um... So they are very motivated to make the Freudian stuff very clear about what they want you to take out of it. Yeah. But also make a very sanitized version of a story that is entrenched in sex and violence. Yeah, I the big thing we had against that movie was the fact that it had to take all of that out to the point where it was barely even subtext anymore. It was coloring inside the lines, like, so much that it was boring. And this movie's not even, like, on the same page. Like, it's coloring, like, outside the book. Um, And for me, at least, looking at them as horror films, that's a strength for this movie. That it can be depicting that stuff. So then what do you think about number 43, The Leopard Man... In the way that it handled the psychology of the serial killer versus the psychology of the implied serial killer, we at least right. get one kill yeah. um, in dementia. Not not worrying about the method right. <laughs> of using a, a panther. Yeah, I think, again, I feel like the strength in dementia is that this movie has a clarity of what it's talking about because in the leopard man like the the psychology is a little bit rough it is interesting because that movie tries to you know maintain the idea that like serial killers are just crazy and there isn't really rational motivations to be found here but it gets confused because it tries to wrap up its like murder plot in and around like post-colonial themes 
that it never quite figures out what to do with. And those post-colonial aspects of, like, being in, like, Catholic, you know, Mexico or whatever, you know, give that movie a really interesting flavor, but they never quite coalesce into feeling consistent Mm -hmm. the whole movie through. So, the next film that draws my eyes is Dead of Night. Mm. Below Dead of Night is El Hombre Sin Rostro. Which is the man without a face? Mm, that yeah, those are both really good examples of that um, surreal nightmare thing. We were really impressed with Man Without a Face. Yeah, I really liked Man Without a Face, and I think the psychology in Man Without a Face is really strong. Partly because there's a psychologist character to like explain it to us, but. I think I kind of like Man Without a Face better than this, thinking about it. Okay, yeah, I, I'm feeling that same way as well. Um, Man Without a Face managed to get across, you know, if, if you have a psychological thriller itch, it's going to scratch it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's going to scratch it more directly than Dementia. Dementia will, you know, it's kind of going to like scratch around where the actual itch is, but it will get there eventually. I think the thing about Dementia is, you know, as clear as it is thematically, narratively it's not super satisfying. Yeah. Like, there just isn't the excitement that you feel from Man Without a Face with like the slow realization of like what's going on or the not slow realization if you're a modern audience who can figure out the twist (laughs) in like five minutes. But I think also Man Without a Face is interesting because it's a twist. Yeah. And here, and the psychology is very unique and interesting. There's psychology here. I don't really know how interesting it is. Maybe it was in 1955, but I feel like in 2020, you know, she's a murderer because she had shitty parents is like a pretty like ho-hum villain origin you know what i mean (laughs) sure okay yeah i'm happy with the spot then okay sometimes we get movies that are really hard to compare to other movies sarah but we find a way so entering the list at the new number 43 below el hombre sin rostro and above the leopard man is dementia from 1955 directed by john parker if you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our Ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. Or you can chat with us over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Or you can listen to the show with whatever app you prefer by subscribing to our RSS feed. If you'd like to help us out, you can do that by leaving a rating or review on one of those podcasting apps. Um, Doing that helps the app suggest the show to other people through algorithms. Um, Or you can help us grow the audience more directly just by telling a friend about us. Sharing the show on social media is a great way to do that. If you have the means and, you know, it's not too much of an imposition, 
You can also support us financially by heading to patreon.com slash podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the $5 and $10 levels get access to bonus content that we put out. And we have been on Patreon for 144 weeks now. And our first Patreon goal is if we can hit $150 a month, we're going to start looking at horror-adjacent movies um, in a special episode that would come out once a month. And those could be movies like Glenn or Glenda, horror-adjacent. Yeah, I guess, because Ed Wood directs... And Bela Lugosi and yeah. the weirdness. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. Currently, we are sitting at $120 a month. And we would like you to help us reach $150 by our 150th week on Patreon. So you got six weeks to help us get that last $30. That's right. So patreon.com slash Podcast. What are we watching next week, Ben? Next week, Sarah, we are back to the world of Roger Corman. Oh, it's the wonderful world the of Roger, Roger Corman. Exactly. Uh, this time he's directing. Oh, good for him. And it's the top half of a double bill. It's Day the World Ended. Very much so, it's not the day the world ended. It's just Day the World Ended. Like they <laughs> forgot the on the poster or something. <laughs> cool. Okay. I, is this our first like apocalypse movie? I think so. Yeah. Yes. Obviously... There have been some, like War yes. of the Worlds, etc. But Yeah, this is our first post-apocalypse movie. Awesome. Cool. So we will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Or will we? Because the day ended. The world ended. The, the world ended. Bye! Bye! <laughs>